Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it wasn't that long ago I was on the air with you all last, but hey, it's good to be back on the air again, and I hope all of you have had a good start to your week. You know, I just remembered something, too. When I was on the air last, we were discussing New York, and I had mentioned that it was a northern state, and while, yes, New York, for example, is north of where I live in Virginia, we must remember in 1787, as the U.S. Constitution is being debated and will eventually get ratified and signed, or rather I should say debated, signed, and ratified, I should say, New York in 1787 was considered a middle colony. Okay, 13 states. Which states are considered the northern states? New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. The southern states, well, they would have been Virginia, North, South Carolina, and Georgia. So when we were on the air last, we began discussing the middle states, leading off with New York. So which will be our next middle state to discuss in this podcast episode of signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution? That answer is New Jersey. So here's our lead-off bonus question for uh, this uh, podcast episode. What picture is on the New Jersey State Quarter? Most of you would know some years back, probably a good 20 years ago, um, the um, U.S. Department of, um, or rather the Bureau of Mint and Engraving, began um, making coins per each state. And um, I know that the uh, Denver Mint and the Philadelphia Mint were the two that were uh, were the uh, main uh, leaders behind um, behind making those uh, state coins. I have, as a matter of fact, I have a collection of state coins myself, and um, that is a unique treasure to say the least. But does anybody want to take a guess at exactly what picture is on the New Jersey State Quarter? Is it? A picture of the state of New Jersey as a whole? Is it a picture of, um, does it have anything to do with uh, American Revolutionary War related theme? The answer is choice B, American Revolutionary War related theme. So the picture that is on the New Jersey State Quarter is of General George Washington and members of the Continental Army crossing the Delaware River Christmas night 1776 en route to Trenton, New Jersey, where Washington's forces went about achieving the improbable in a victory-or-death mission, and that's what Washington titled the mission, Victory or Death, because he knew that in order to keep the Continental Army alive, as 1776 was coming to an end, he knew he had to do something different from conventional war-style warfare fighting. Remember, uh, the Europeans were the ones that would rest in the winter and wait till the spring when things got um, better for soldiers in terms of traveling from point A to point B. Well, remember, desertions are high, morale is low, George Washington knows enlistments are about to expire, 
and with the assistance of a Tory spy named John Honeyman, Washington pulls off the improbable. His forces, with fewer than 2,500 men, go on a daring mission that was improbable, labeled victory or death, cross the Delaware River Christmas night, arrive into Trenton, New Jersey, just after 6 a.m., and they achieved the improbable by capturing over 900 Hessian soldiers, which restored the Continental Army's morale. So this picture on the New Jersey State Quarter of, of George Washington and his Continental Army forces crossing the Delaware River was uh, based on Emanuel Lightsey's 1851 painting titled Washington Crossing the Delaware. But interesting enough, the... Um, caption of the New Jersey State Quarter is titled, The Crossroads of the Revolution. Why would it be called The Crossroads of the Revolution? Because it was the, it really was the ultimate turning point that may not have changed the course of the war altogether, but it was the turning point that kept the Continental Army intact. It restored, the, the, the battle itself restored morale, and enlistments went back up people began feeling better about being Americans, and they also knew that the Declaration of Independence, which had been signed or approved five months earlier, now has true meaning. It's one thing to have a document that declares your separation from England, but it doesn't have meaning if you can't, if you aren't able to prove that you can defeat the mightiest empire in a battle or two. Well, that all changed with Trenton at the end of 1776 and with the start of Princeton in January 1777. But of course, besides being called the crossroads of the revolution, New Jersey is also referred to as the Garden State. So, my next question to you all is this. Uh, how many delegates did New Jersey send to Philadelphia in, for the Constitutional Convention? I can tell you this much, it was more than two. Does anybody want to take a guess? I'll give you some other choices, considering that it was more than two. Was it between four and six? Was it more than six or um, five? The answer is between four and six, but the answer lies with the lesser number being four. Will we have time to talk about all four delegates in this uh, podcast episode? No. But I have uh, decided to talk about two of the four delegates. So our first delegate we're going to learn about is a fellow named William Patterson. And his last name is spelled with only one T. When I think of Patterson, I usually think of two T's, but this, this go-around's an exception. Now, was William Patterson originally born in New Jersey? Does anybody want to take a guess? No. Could he have been born somewhere else in the United States or what was uh, b before 1776 colonial America? No. Well, it turns out that he was born in County Antrim, Ireland on December the 24th of 1745. County Antrim, Ireland is one of six counties that make up Northern Ireland. And as we know, Northern Ireland for years has had uh, conflicts between Protestants and uh, Catholics. But then again, what part of the world has not seen conflicts involving, um, 
involving what he called ethnicities, ethnicities going to war all in the name of religion. Even colonial America wasn't immune from religious um, indifferences or um, religious injustices, I should say. So anyways, uh, William Patterson and his uh, parents, um, they came to America in 1747. However, they didn't um, start out in New Jersey right away. They um, arrived in what is now present-day Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is in the western part of the state. And at that time, western Pennsylvania might as well have not existed. It, um, because when we think of Pennsylvania and colonial America times, folks, we think of Philadelphia and the furthest western point in the state at that time being um, Lancaster County, Lancaster, York, and what we might now think of as the present-day capital, Harrisburg, PA. So let's keep in mind that for a long period of time, there was no such thing as Pittsburgh, PA, until after, until uh, the years uh, starting after uh, the Revolutionary War ended. But Patterson and his parents come to America in 1747. They make their home in what we now know as Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is 50 miles northwest of Pittsburgh. Patterson uh, does not come from um, a wealthy family, but he comes from a humble background considering his father's occupation was a peddler. Does anybody know what a peddler is? I, I never even knew that a, a profession called a peddler even existed until I read this book, especially reading about William Patterson. But a peddler is someone who sells what we think of as a kitchenware in today's time. He basically sold pots and pans. And he might as well have been the equivalent of a door-to-door -door salesman. Hey, you know, even in those days, folks, people had to make money doing odd jobs. And you know what? If that's how people got by, then more power to them. Well, let me ask you this question. Given that William Patterson comes from, humble back, comes from a humble background, which there's nothing wrong with, did his parents have enough money to send him to college? And if so, where did young William go off to school? The answer to part one is yes. William's parents did have enough money to send him to college. As, as for part two, at the age of 14, he went off to attend college at the College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton University. We have to remember, folks, uh, children at this, in, this day, in that day and time didn't attend school K through 12. And we also have to remember by the time a child reaches the age of 10, he or she is considered to be an adult. So by the time, you know, William's 14 years of age, yeah, he might as well go off to college and obtain a higher degree of learning. But he's not through with his studies just yet. After finishing college, he goes about studying law with a well-known lawyer and a future Declaration of Independence signer by the name of Richard Stockton. You know, it does pay to have connections. Even if you don't come from a well-to-do family, you still have the possibility to achieve, as long as you set your mind to it. Even Roger Sherman, who signed not only the Declaration of Independence, but the Constitution from Connecticut, Roger Sherman himself came from, hum from humble backgrounds. I mean, his father was a cobbler. You know, a, a man, someone who uh, repairs shoes. 
So we are learning, folks, that not all of our forefathers came from well-to-do families, but at the same time, a lot of our forefathers who didn't come from well-to-do families still found ways to succeed and live the American dream. So as a lawyer, did William Patterson have connections to establish himself in a major city? Of course, when I think of a major city at this time, and it still is a major city today, how about um, Philadelphia? Um, another major city be like, you know, Boston. Uh, what about New York City? I mean, those are major cities, but did William Patterson, as a lawyer, have connections to establish himself in, in a major city, based off of examples that I just mentioned a moment ago? Believe it or not, folks, he didn't, but it didn't stop him from practicing law. He stayed put in Princeton, New Jersey, by remaining actively involved with his college alma mater, which included teaming up with fellow alum, believe it or not, folks, fellow alum Aaron Burr. You know, Aaron Burr, you know, he's the man who shot, who would go on to uh, engage Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel in Weehawken, New Jersey, along the Hudson River, where Burr himself shot, would end up sh killing Hamilton. Well, it turns out that um, William Patterson and Aaron Burr were fellow classmates at Princeton University. Well, what did the two go about doing? They formed a unique society that's still in existence today. It, it happens to be the oldest debate club in America. They formed the American Whig Cleosophic Society, which uh, debated on um, all things political, social. It wasn't confined to just one subject. But these two men were um, very astute with staying actively involved with their alma mater, that they went as far as forming a society being none other than the American Whig Cleosophic Society that is the, that still remains the oldest debate club in America. More power to those uh, two men right there. But at the start of the 1770s, William Patterson becomes heavily involved in rebel activity. Okay, and we all know that rebel activity, that means you don't like anything that uh, Parliament or that the Crown itself has um, imposed upon her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies. So in other words, Patter William Patterson does, is totally against uh, taxation without representation with the infamous Stamp Act. He does not like the fact that the Townshend duties have placed taxes on lead, paper, paint, glass and the infamous T representing another violation or rather a direct violation of um, improper consent. He would also be against the quartering act, which pretty much made it a mandatory requirement that no matter where British troops got stationed in colonial America, that the um, inhabitants of the towns and cities would be forced against their own will to provide housing and food for soldiers occupying their uh, village, their, their um, cities. So basically, we, it's fair to say that William Patterson, being heavily involved in rebel activity, is not going to tolerate anything that would um, cater to loyalist needs or rather loyalist sympathies. As a matter of fact, um, one of the big um, 
activities during the time of the 1770s that William Patterson, from engaging in rebel activities, that is, he was on the committee that helped oversee New Jersey's royal governor. Most of you all probably aren't going to know this one. I didn't know about it until um, I'd read this book and maybe from somewhere else. But the royal governor just so happened to be William Franklin. Is William Franklin, by any chance, folks, related to Benjamin Franklin? Yes, but how so? It turns out, folks, that um, William Franklin was Benjamin Franklin's illegitimate son. You know, I, I know it's easy to assume that all of our forefathers were perfect, but they're like the rest of us. They had their flaws. Yes, some flaws were more severe than what others might have had. But at the same time, you know, I, I think it would be ludicrous to ridicule Benjamin Franklin just for the fact that he had an illegitimate son. After all, today's politicians, there are a lot of them who um, aren't honest with the American people, and yet they do things behind our backs. And yet, over time, they get caught doing this stuff, but yet somehow some of them still manage to get away with it. So, yes, believe it or not, though, folks, that um, New Jersey's royal governor was none other than Benjamin Franklin's illegitimate son, William Franklin. But if it makes you all feel any better, better neither one of those two had a good relationship with one another, and uh, Benjamin Franklin did disown him because his uh, illegitimate son uh, chose to remain loyal to the crown. What did uh, William Patterson take part in that was of importance to New Jersey come 1776? Well, you know, New Jersey, like the other colonies, obviously approves of the Declaration of Independence, but there's something else important to the state of New Jersey in 1776. Uh, Patterson serves as the secretary he basically helps record the 1776 New Jersey State Constitution. And it turns out that also in 1776, he gets appointed as the state's first attorney general. So William Patterson, folks, is really moving in the right direction. Maybe not on the national level just yet, but he is really moving in the right direction per his, uh, per his state. <clears throat> Patterson was a man whom favored order. In other words, when I think of order, I think of structure. I think of uh, firm game plans already um, laid out, so this way you have a fundamental idea of what it is you're going to be doing, not just on a day-by-day -day basis, but what um, tasks you need to get done within a certain time span. Because if you don't have any structure then how are you going to know how to get organized? How are you going to know to plan properly? In other words, William Patterson is not someone who likes to live in the moment. I don't like living in the moment either, too, so maybe it's fair to say the two of us would have gotten along well. I can give you a good example of um, just how structured Patterson was, and this comes from a law perspective, given that he's a lawyer and he also served as a judge, too. But Patterson went as far as disowning family members who borrowed money, but yet never repaid the loaned amount back. So in other words, for William Patterson, people need to fulfill their obligations by 
by living up to their promises as well as their actions. Okay, if John Smith lends Tom Jones money, then Tom Jones needs to pay John Smith that money back, regardless of how much money uh, Tom Jones was given. And if Tom Jones can't do that, then there are then there needs to be um, repercussions for for his actions. Uh, was William Patterson the leading voice behind the New Jersey plan? Okay, here we go now. 1787. We're in Philadelphia. Remember, folks, the New Jersey plan is geared towards the smaller states, like New like New Jersey itself, Delaware, Maryland. Maybe even states like Connecticut. You know, Connecticut's a fairly small state, too, even though it's north of New Jersey. But when I think of smaller states, I tend to think of the majority being in the middle Atlantic, being uh, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. But is William Patterson the leading voice behind the New Jersey plan? Yes. And the New Jersey plan's um, intent was giving less populous states like his the same voting representation or rights that were provided under the Articles of Confederation, meaning one vote regardless of state size. In other words, the vote in New Jersey is equivalent to the vote in Virginia. However, Patterson, as noble of a plan as the New Jersey plan may be, Patterson is also fearful of what large states like Virginia, which is the largest of the 13 states, possesses. In other words, Patterson already knows that Virginia, given that she's the largest of the 13 states, will probably have greater influence and will um, dominate the political scene so much to where representatives from New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland will never have a chance to uh, speak out on what is best for their own constituents' behalf. Well, fortunately, though, William Patterson will um, be introduced to Roger Sherman's plan, the Great Compromise. Remember when we focused on, when we talked about Sherman, what that Great Compromise was about? Well, Patterson does support Sherman's plan. The Great Compromise was where um, the House of Representatives, the lower body, representation would get based upon population. So in other words, each state would have more than one congressional district based upon population, but in the upper body, being the Senate, each state will get two senators. So can um, William Patterson live with this compromise, folks? He sure can. And I think anybody who uh, represents the smaller states in terms of delegates should feel the same way as well. I mean, yes, Virginia will have more congressional districts than New Jersey, but regardless of state size, Virginia and New Jersey, for example, can both agree that, okay, we each have the same number of senators, and by having the same number of senators, small and large states know that their senators can still meet their constituents' needs in a same uh, manner that can lead to um, bipartisan results. Okay, now that uh, the Constitution um, has been um, approved in Patterson's eyes, or, or um, 
in Patterson's mind uh, when uh, as he was getting ready to leave Philadelphia. Was Patterson um, a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist? Remember, folks, the Federalists are the ones who favor the strong central government, whereas the Anti-Federalists are the ones who favor the uh, weak central government. Well, it turns out that Patterson was a Federalist. He would go on to be one of New Jersey's first U.S. Senators. He served on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I found this to be fascinating right here that while he served on the Senate Judiciary Committee, he helped draft the Judiciary Act of 1789. What's so important about the Judiciary Act of 1789? It created the federal court system. In other words, when you think of this piece of legislation, folks, this legislation helped establish what we now know as the United States Supreme Court. Of course, the Constitution did call for three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial, but there had to be legislation to create a um, federal court system. You know, we, we couldn't just say tomorrow, oh, um, I have the uh, idea for our federal court system. We're just going to call it the United States Supreme Court. You know, in other words, uh, polit the politicians needed to debate about this, but thank goodness they all came together and realized, hey, there does need to be a federal court system. In other words, you know, yes, there still could be a state court system and a local court system, but there needs to be a federal court system. In other words, even the judiciary system needs to have different levels. In other words, on the federal level, that's where you get to what we call the last resort. I should also point this out to folks that prior to 1787, 90% of the American population was living on farms, so that pretty much means that only 10% at best, maybe 10% at best, ever went to court for anything. So we need to keep in mind that the vast majority of the American population, if they were involved in legal disputes, they usually were able to get them resolved on a local level. Very seldomly did anything require going to a higher level authority, like being the equivalent of a national level. But of course, as uh, rebellions are taking place in multiple states, obviously constitutional reform had to take place. And with reform, you also get a federal court system that comes into play as a means of the Judiciary Act of 1789. Now, what political advancement uh, did William Patterson attain in 1793? He becomes an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court. Now, what a noble position that is, folks. It's a position that he would hold up until his death in 1806. Now, when I think of um, justices on the United States Supreme Court in the early days of the court's existence, there's always one person that comes to my mind. A Virginian whose name is none other than Chief Justice John Marshall. He served on the United States Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835. But that's the one person that usually comes to my mind in the United States Supreme Court's earliest um, days of existence. Now, I should point out that William Patterson did marry um, a lady named Cornelia Bell. And it turns out that her father was a well-to-do landowner in Somerset County, New Jersey. 
After all, there is a place in New Jersey called Somerset. Cornelia sadly died from childbirth complications in 1783. And Patterson did remarry shortly after, but um, what I found as tragic as his first wife's death was, they had two daughters and a son. One of his daughters, her name was Cornelia Bell Patterson. She married a prominent, um, a man of prominent status from New York, and his name just so happened to be Stephen Van Rensselaer. But it turns out there were several Stephen Van Rensselaers who lived um, in uh, New York. And why is the Rensselaer last name so important? Well, the Rensselaers, along with the Van Cortlands, along with the Livingstons, just to name a few prominent uh, aristocratic landowner families in New York, they were some of the most powerful um, families who owned vast amounts of uh, land not only in New York State, but the Van Rensselaers were um, the most powerful of those landowners. And there is a college outside of uh, Albany, probably closer to Schenectady, known as uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So whenever you think of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, think of the powerful uh, Rensselaer family from New York who um, owned a huge swath of estate, most notably along the Hudson River Valley. Now, on September 9th of 1806, William Patterson died at the age of 60. You know, that's considered to be fairly old for that day and time. But his uh, death was not one that happened overnight. It was a result from a horse and buggy accident three years earlier in 1803, which occurred while making uh, circuit court duty rounds. Um, he is buried, um, not in New Jersey, but rather in uh, Albany, New York with other uh, family members of his. So I can say that William Patterson uh, lived a very distinguished life. And as a matter of fact, there is a um, town um, in New Jersey, uh, in the northern part of the state called Patterson, New Jersey. It's located outside of Pine Brook. And how I know this is because it's, it's through my um, work in trucking where uh, one of our Estes terminals is located in uh, Pine Brook, New Jersey, and it serves uh, Patterson. So anytime you think of Patterson, New Jersey, folks, uh, it's named after um, William Patterson, who was a signer uh, from New Jersey to the U.S. Constitution. Before we um, move on to delegate number uh, two, um, I should, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, did New Jersey ratify the United States Constitution in 1787 or 1788? because it seems like the uh, previous um, states, being New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York, all ratified the Constitution in 1788. Is New Jersey still on the same trend, or did they ratify in 1787? It turns out that on December 18, 1787, New Jersey was the third state to ratify. Okay, so we're moving on up in the right direction. Not that 1788 is a bad year to ratify, but it's just nice to know that we now are seeing some states being able to ratify the Constitution in a short amount of time, considering that the document was uh, ratified, or not so much ratified, but, but, but approved by the delegates who were in attendance there from May to September of 1787. So it's good to know three months after, in December, 
that uh, we are now seeing activity uh, by uh, states who are of a smaller size approving the Constitution. Our second delegate is um, Jonathan Dayton. I found him to probably, I found him to be very interesting. Opposite of William Patterson, but his story is worth sharing. He was born on October 16, 1760, the same year that King George III of England became England's official head of state. He was born in Elizabethtown, or what's now called Elizabeth, New Jersey. So he is a native of New Jersey, unlike William Patterson, who um, immigrated to America from uh, County Antrim, Ireland. He is the son of Elias Dayton, whom was well known in local politics. Did Jonathan Dayton attend college? Yes. Where did he go? Did he go to what we now know as Princeton? Did he go to Harvard or did he go to Yale? He attended uh, the College of New Jersey or what we now know as Princeton, but in 1775 he left school to join the Continental Army by serving under his father's regiment, which was the 3rd New Jersey Regiment. Dayton also fought under General George Washington's command in Pennsylvania, most notably at the battles of Brandywine Creek and Germantown in late 1777. He also was present at Valley Forge, so he endured what were called the, um, the most uh, trying times. And thank heavens he was able to... Um, he saw the, um, what do you call it, the brutal life that the soldiers endured because of those, of the harsh winter, but he also was a part of a transformation, thanks in large part, not only to Washington, but to Baron von Steuben, whom helped uh, reinvigorate the Continental Army with new uh, drill uh, tactics that uh, paid off in the long term. But in October of 1780, uh, Jonathan Dayton, along with one of his uncles, were captured by loyalists, but luckily they got released via prisoner exchange. It's one thing to have been a prisoner, but the only way you got out was through a prisoner exchange, folks. It had nothing to do with uh, being on good behavior in jail and someone saying, oh, we're going to let you out on parole because, you know, you behaved so well. No, it, did, it didn't work that way. Jonathan Dayton also served under Alexander Hamilton and the Marquis de Lafayette at Yorktown. So it's fair to say, folks, that Jonathan Dayton has had some phenomenal military experience serving under some high-profiled leaders. Not only just General George Washington, but under Alexander Hamilton and Marquis de Lafayette. It doesn't get any better than that. Did Jonathan Dayton become a lawyer along with entering politics after the Revolutionary War? Yes. He served in the New Jersey General Assembly from 1786 to 1787 and again in 1790. And is it fair to say, like William Patterson, was Jonathan Dayton a Federalist as well? Yes, he was. Was Jonathan Dayton the youngest member present at the Constitutional Convention. Yes, he was. Does anybody want to take a guess at just how old Jonathan Dayton was? Was he between... Um, oh, well, let me ask you this. 
I'll give you a, an age range. It's between 25 and 30. Okay, let's think about this, folks. Uh, 1787, you know, May of 1787, we're starting to convene in Philadelphia. And the convention ends in September of 1787. So the answer is the following, age 26. That's how old Jonathan Dayton was. That's quite a, a remarkable accomplishment to be that young and to sign a significant document that still lasts to this day. Like William Patterson, Dayton himself was an ardent supporter behind the New Jersey plan. <clears throat> One vote regardless of state size, but in the end, like William Patterson, Jonathan Dayton came around to Roger Sherman's great compromise proposal. If anybody didn't come to, um, how should I say it, if anybody didn't support Roger Sherman's great compromise proposal, then something wasn't right with them. Before getting elected to Congress in 1789, that same year also saw Dayton serve on the New Jersey Legislative Council, which would be the precursor to the New Jersey State Senate. It's kind of like the same thing as uh, what the state of Virginia had for a number of years until 1851, which was known as the Council of State, which was about an eight or a ten-member body that um, advised uh, the governor on all important decisions, as well as advising the governor on how to go about um, issuing, say, executive orders, that kind of thing. What unique post did Jonathan Dayton hold during both sessions of the 4th and 5th United States Congresses? He served as the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now that's quite a unique position right there, folks. And he wasn't, he wasn't even 35 years old just yet. But still, to have served as Speaker of the House of Representatives uh, when you're right about 34 years of age, it doesn't get any better than that. Did Jonathan Dayton have a hobby on the side, which over time contributed to his political downfall? You know, it seems like Jonathan Dayton can't do anything wrong. He seems to be doing a lot of things right, but will he do something or get involved in some activities that will contribute to his political downfall? I hate to tell you this, folks, but yes. His hobby interest lied with real estate investing or what we would have known back then as land speculation. Dayton's real estate interests focused on land in what's now present-day Ohio. After the Constitutional Convention, uh, Dayton teamed up with other speculators in buying vast sums of land with the hopes of bringing New Jersey farmers west to settle along the Miami River. The Miami River is uh, the main body of water that, um, that pretty much is located in what is now present-day Dayton, Ohio. And um, in case some of you all are wondering, why would it be Miami River? Well, I do know that, um, that there was a, a famous uh, Indian tribe, in, um, not a tribe, but it was known as the Miami Confederacy in Ohio that uh, was comprised of multiple Indian tribes. So that's where you get um, Miamisburg, uh, which is outside, located outside of Dayton. So in case any of y'all are wondering how Miami comes into play, just think of the Miami um, Indian Confederacy um, organization that was comprised of multiple tribes. Now, 
Now, the New Jersey farmers, they took up Dayton's offer by moving to present-day Ohio, and the town was named uh, Dayton in honor of Jonathan Dayton. So when you think of Dayton, Ohio, you think of Jonathan Dayton. While all of this is great, folks, Jonathan Dayton met his first ambush here with, um, with shady land dealings. In other words, the um, speculators, including Dayton himself, never were able to repay back this money. But somehow Dayton avoided serving time in debtor's prison. Remember, debtor's prison was a, a prison where people went whom could, whom they, where, where they could not pay off their debts. And they stayed in debtor's prisons until the debts were paid. Well, somehow, Jonathan Dayton got off the hook here. <clears throat> but, um, but the problem, though, is that his problems with land speculation are only going to grow. Here, if you think that one was bad, how about this one? Jonathan Dayton stole $18,000 from Congress. You know, politicians, even to this day, steal money from Congress. And while it doesn't seem right, there still are a lot of politicians, regardless of the, their political party affiliation, who get away with it. Jonathan Dayton stole $18,000 from Congress just to partake in another land deal. But what do you know, folks? Jonathan Dayton paid the entire sum back. However, his image was already tainted, meaning that it had been ruined. You know, it's sad to think that Dayton didn't learn his lessons the first time. But you know what? For many of these men who are involved in land speculation deals, it's an addiction. Once you get started, you can't stop. And once you've struck gold... It's almost like the equivalent of spending money like there's no tomorrow. Okay, I made a good deal here on this land tract. Let's go to the next one. And, you know, and as for being in the red and debt, uh, somebody else will just bail me out. That's how a lot of these land speculators worked. And over time, it backfired on a lot of them. But, as I mentioned earlier, Aaron Burr was one of Jonathan's, um, Jonathan Dayton's uh, classmates from Princeton. Well, actually, I take it back. Well, William uh, Patterson and um, Aaron Burr were uh, classmates um, at uh, Princeton, but um, it turns out that Jonathan Dayton and Aaron Burr knew one another as well from uh, Princeton. It's amazing about these connections, folks. I mean, you think with all these connections, they would lead you down the road for all the right reasons, but it turns out that... Um, that Aaron Burr's presence uh, would serve as the final straw that ruined Jonathan Dayton altogether. The affair itself revolved around Spanish territory in the western United States. Aaron Burr wanted to create his own western empire. And what does Jonathan Dayton do? Well, he goes along with Aaron Burr's visions, but doing so by lending Burr money. It's one thing to have lent money to Aaron Burr, but now there's going to be a financial paper trail with Dayton's own name on it. And in 1807, he would get arrested for treason, but he never went to trial for it. Why should this guy be allowed to live if he can't learn from his mistakes? 
Well, Jonathan Dayton dies in 1824, just shy of having turned 64, so he lives to be 63. But let me ask you all this, folks. Where is Jonathan Dayton buried? Is he buried in New Jersey? Yes. He was interred at St. John's Churchyard in Elizabeth. But let me ask you this. Can his gravesite, or rather tombstone, can you find it at um, St. John's Churchyard? Turns out, folks, you can't find his um, graveyard. It's, it's not present anymore. I have the answer to it. I was blown away when I read about it. It turns out that um, 36 years later, in 1860, on the eve of the, of the Civil War, being the war between the states, in 1860, um, St. John's Church got rebuilt. And the church leaders agreed to place the new church, that is, the new church structure, right over Jonathan Dayton's grave. In other words, these church leaders, while yes, for all we know, some of them could have been alive before Jonathan Dayton was uh, before Jonathan Dayton passed away. Some of these um, church leaders probably knew about Dayton's uh, shady past. So now that leads me to ask you all: If they agreed to place the new church structure right over Dayton's grave. Why do you think they went about doing that? Well, for one, Jonathan Dayton fell from grace. For starters, we're all given grace. We're all born with it, but it's how we choose to exercise our grace in daily life functions and how we uh, conduct ourselves as individuals. Yes, we will fall at times in our lives, but it's up to us as individuals to learn from our mistakes and not repeat them again. Did Jonathan Dayton learn from his mistakes, especially the first time around with land speculation deals? No. Did Jonathan Dayton um, take advantage of people? Yes, he did. Yes, I, might, I, I could say that it's an honor that Dayton, Ohio is named after him and that there were farmers from New Jersey who were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice by going west to... Um, to populate in, um, in what we now know as the Northwest Territory. But perhaps Jonathan Dayton's personal fall from grace was too much for the people of Elizabeth, New Jersey to handle. The burial of Dayton's grave, that is the church, the new church structure going over his grave, probably ought to serve as a reminder to keep one's past unpleasantries placed on a shelf where the past itself ought to remain. So in other words, by not having to look at Jonathan Dayton's grave and knowing that the church structure covers his grave, people will know that, hey, he's no longer relevant to us because he betrayed so many people. Well, I will say this, folks, Jonathan Dayton might not be the first and he may not be the last of our signers who might have fallen from grace. I can say for a brief period of time, Jonathan Dayton was a good person. I would probably say he was a far better soldier serving his country when it mattered most 
and fighting for freedom from a tyrannical empire to serving in his state legislature. But when it came to serving on the national level, that's where Dayton's fall from grace came into play. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and um, thank you again, as always, for listening. And when I'm back on the air again, uh, we're going to be uh, learning about another middle state. As a matter of fact, it might be one that um, could possibly be more than just one podcast episode on. As a matter of fact, the state that we will be talking about next, uh, my wife and I were there not too long ago. If I tell any more now, there might not be a surprise left to tell. But again, thank you all for listening as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care for now and stay safe.